0: It's the ERP Confab. I'm David Essex, industry editor at Search ERP. Is manufacturing the next industry that will be transformed by remote work? It's not as unrealistic as it sounds. Advances in virtual reality, factory automation, and remote monitoring could soon make it possible for line workers to do their jobs remotely, thereby expanding the talent pool and helping to alleviate the shortage of skilled labor. I talked to Jerry Foster, CTO and founder of Plex, one of the first multi-tenant SaaS ERP vendors, but why he thinks remote factory work is a good idea and the steps needed to make it a reality. Plex's PR firm pitched a conversation about an idea I really hadn't heard before, which is how virtual reality can be paired with automation and remote monitoring, not only to create the factory floor of the future, but to allow factory workers to work from home and to have true remote work. Can you describe what you're envisioning and kind of fill in the details? Maybe
1: I'd set up just a little bit of foundation to that. There's, I think there's a few components in play, two of them are, that's already in play, The first thing is having cloud-based software like Plex MES, which runs in any browser with an internet connection, that gives you the mechanism to not just control your operations remotely, but also monitor your entire enterprise from anywhere in the world. So it gives you total visibility, regardless of the geography or the number of the plants. So workers can do their job remotely as if nothing had changed from when they were in the office. And decision makers can continue to make critical decisions because they have real-time full visibility. Into every single one of those plant operations. So as an example, we had one of our customers during the pandemic, they had to send everyone home as most people did. And half of their plants were using cloud-based software like Plex and half were using on-premise software. The plants that were using cloud-based software continued running as if nothing had happened. But the the plants that were using on-premise software, they really struggled. They couldn't communicate. No one knew. Corporate didn't know what was going on in those facilities. And so that's the power of a cloud-based remote situation and scenario. So you think about, okay, in that scenario, they sent all the workers home except for the workers on the line, right? Because they still needed someone there pressing the buttons on the factory floor. So envision this scenario, envision being able to send those workers home also. And they would go home and they would put on their virtual reality goggles. And they would interact with a digital representation of their machine or their work center which would send a signal real time to its physical twin located dozens or hundreds of miles away. And it would actually build the part or do whatever thing that they were trying to do as if they were standing there in that actual physical location. So using this concept of digital twins and and whatnot, we have a scenario where everyone could go home and work from home. uh, But for the line workers, we actually have to, to add that additional capability of using those VR goggles and that digitalization of the uh, of the assets so they could inter- interact real time.
0: How close are we to having this be real and how many pieces are in place or when do you think they'll be in place? I'd like to say, okay, September of 2028, uh, <laughs> <laughs> right?
1: When you talk about a, a situation like I just uh, mentioned, there's a number of technologies in play. And so each one of those are going to happen in a step-by-step basis, right? Some of those things will require implementing like 5G at your facility. Some will require you to upgrade your your network or your machines. And some of that will require implementing a cloud-based MES. So there's technologies along the way that have to happen and are happening right now. Then being able to pull all those things together is what's going to actually enable the the kind of the nirvana scenario that I, I just envisioned a few minutes ago. I think just based, this is just purely finger in the wind kind of guesswork. I would expect to see functioning prototypes probably in the next five years.
0: I can sort of imagine the benefits, but I guess I need to ask what they would be. Like, for example, you know, we know there's a, a shortage of skilled factory workers and that manufacturing work is getting very technical. Do you think this will help with maybe the upskilling issue or just the issue of getting the skills into the company because those right. people can be remote? So there's a lot of aspects
1: to that question. So let me, let me hit a few of them. As far as the benefits, the biggest benefit is just the ability to weather unexpected disruptions, right? Can you imagine someone in in a boardroom, some manufacturing executive in 2019 that says, okay, our strategy for 2020 is to figure out how to send everyone home and not go out of business, right? (laughs) Who would have thought that you would have actually had to come up with a strategy like that? But right. cloud enables that very thing. So that's a huge benefit of this remote-type worker is to weather those unexpected disruptions. Then on the employee side, of course, they can continue to do their job. There's a work-life balance component, not having to commute and, and not having to pay for gas. The environmental benefits, uh, reduction in fuel consumption, wear and tear on our cars and roads, uh, mental health benefits. So there's all these benefits surrounding the worker And then you touched on the shortage in the workforce. And I think there's some real advantages there as well. For for instance, one advantage is you no longer have to hire from a local talent pool. You're not restricted to just those who can commute. And then to take that a step further, it breaks down a lot of barriers. You might have potential workers who are restricted because they might have physical disabilities or they can't drive for one reason or another. Well, they can use a computer. They're very adept with technology. Suddenly, they could be part of that workforce and help you fill that gap. So there's definitely some capabilities there. I would also say another component of this, which is fascinating to me, is I mentioned a second ago, this work-life balance component. We've had workers here at Plex who, during the pandemic, moved home to care for ailing parents. We had one worker who sold their home and bought an RV and traveled the country for a year and a half with their family and little kids and didn't miss a day of work. So you've got this ability to, I think, to give employees a balance that Makes them fulfilled and happy employees are more productive employees, which is part of the solution to this workforce shortage. And then the last thing you touched on is the skills gap. I I think there's some interesting things there. When you talk about the skills gap, I'm not sure that this remote work addresses it. It might actually exacerbate the problem a little bit. Imagine the case of like a manufacturing purchase agent. If we send that person home and they're going to work remotely, there's really not a whole lot that they need to be trained on to do that. Their scenario at home is very similar to their scenario at work. They have a browser and their internet-based software and they're doing the same thing. But now imagine that that Nirvana situation with the line worker going home. Well, it's not just them and a physical machine, it's virtual reality goggles and a digital representation and a whole technical component over and above their normal job. So there's definitely some training that has to happen there. My guess is it's gonna take time to kind of bridge that gap. And I think actually we're gonna see a lot of um, new workers being attracted to this. You know, the the kids who are growing up with a pacifier in one hand and a a tablet in the other, I think they're going to uh, gravitate to to that sort of skill set and that sort of a capability.
0: I know that virtual reality and augmented reality are also increasingly used and of great interest for corporate training. How will this help for the training, getting people up to speed, the upskilling and all that? There's one thing to tell someone how to operate a 2000 ton press that comes
1: you know, come slamming down on a piece of hot molten steel and shapes it into a part, just telling them how that works and actually putting them in front of that machine and kind of the, the safety issues that are involved with a newbie on that kind of scenario. And maybe if you're trying to practice on actual material and the waste involved in that. So if we could actually set up an augmented reality scenario where they have a press in front of them and they're actually working on that and we have an actual representation of what happens in real life in front of them, they can become very comfortable with how the you know the look and feel and the the, the actions of moving your hands and, and how it works mm-hmm. is so much different than just reading it on a piece of paper or having someone tell tell you. So the step from paper to doing it in real life versus an augmented reality scenario to real life is much smaller in that latter situation. So I think there's a huge possibility there or potential, I should say, in that sort of situation for sure.
0: Now, what are the risks? Aren't aren't there certain operations in a manufacturing facility that are harder to control remotely?
1: Yeah, for sure. I think there is definitely some risks. How do you address unforeseen issues in the plant? Anyone who's worked in a manufacturing facility for any length of time knows there's always those, oh, crap situation. What do we do about this? You just Mm -hmm. you can't even plan for them because you didn't know they were going to come, you know? What happens when a windstorm knocks over a stack of pallets all over the floor? Your AGVs can't get it, you know, get around it. Who's there to clean that up? What about, you know, electrical issues in the plant? How do you solve for those? You know, sometimes there's those complex situations where you just need a human to step back and say, oh, this is what we need to do. So I think that's a risk. I think we've already touched on the skills gap is a, it's a bit of a risk. I also think there's a bit of a risk, and this might be off the beaten path a little bit. But when we go full remote, and I've even noticed this at our customers and, and at Plex even a little bit, you risk a lack of team cohesiveness, of camaraderie. Mm-hmm. And I think there's an intangible tangible benefit there. Even on the factory floor, I work shoulder to shoulder with these people. I get to know my coworkers. I learn about their kids during lunch break, and I have their back. There's a sense of protection there with your coworker that you get um, when you're working shoulder to shoulder. So I think there's some, some risks in losing that there are definitely operations that are harder to control remotely and how do you, it's harder to automate, you know, a multi-step process or complex production scenarios. Um, Changing out tooling from one job to another can be difficult. So I think there's definitely going to be a long tail to some of those, some of those use cases, getting those ironed out. I think there's some basic use cases that we'll be able to tackle, but some of those complex ones are just going to have to be solved over, over time.
0: Do you have any advice about how manufacturers can try to get their minds around deciding which functions can be done remotely? Maybe it's too early to say, but are there certain characteristics of things that can be done remotely versus ones that can't? And that's how they can sort of analyze the situation as they decide whether they even want to try to do this remote work. Right. It's a journey. I think it is kind of hard to say there's lots of learnings along the way. You just don't jump into the deep
1: end, right? You're like, what's the first step to this? For a lot of companies, the first step is just installing or implementing, not installing, but implementing some some cloud-based software just to get their users used to the fact that, hey, I can do at home what I do at work. So maybe having accounting work from home for a couple of days a week there's very little risk there. And it's a step towards, hey, this is a remote scenario that I can play with. And, and then I think the next thing to think of is what are the economies of scale? What are the most basic repetitive tasks that we can automate? And then then we automate it. We put robots and cobots in place. and Then we train our workers to manage those robots remotely. And so that's the next step. I think there's just a, a step-by-step process there. And you start with the easiest. What can you have, can you have immediate success with and go from there?
0: Would you call this a metaverse application?
1: I would, but I hesitate doing so because the term metaverse right now is so much baggage and it's getting beat up you know, in the news quite a bit. And rightly so. There's so many obnoxious commercials and promises. But yeah. that's because that's where we are in the innovation cycle. We're in the hype section. And that's what you expect in the hype section. I've seen it over and over and over with all the technologies that we've been through. And that's where we're at right now. So I expect... At some point, as we enter into this trough of disillusionment, part of this hype cycle, eventually we're going to kind of level out a little bit, and we're going to actually see some real use cases take hold that are actually productive in their implementation.
0: What about the technical hurdles? We talked a bit about some of the people issues, and I think you mentioned 5G earlier and some technologies. Can we kind of revisit that? Sure. What are some of the technical things that people need, might need to put in place to really make this feasible? So I think the thing to remember here is when you talk about metaverse, the metaverse
1: itself is not a technology. So you don't say, I'm going to go install the metaverse. It's a collection of technologies, right? And those technologies have to work together. (laughs) And we know how that goes sometimes. But we have to get these complex technologies like digital twin and 5G virtual reality, spatial technology, even artificial intelligence a bit. Those things all have to work together. And those are the things that make up the metaverse. So there are definitely some technical hurdles there. And getting those things in place are going to be key to helping make this happen. So, you know, setting up a digital twin or, or, make, or implementing 5G in your facility, each of those is a step towards uh, making this more of a reality. I think there's also a couple other infrastructure issues. High-speed connectivity everywhere. And that's becoming less and less an issue. But I live out here in the boonies and we just got high speed internet last year. I mean, yeah, last year, last summer. So there are some places that you want to send your workers home, but when they get home, they're like, I can't, I can't do what you need me to do. So that's a, that's technical hurdle. Um, A power grid that's bulletproof, that's a hurdle. So some of those infrastructure and utility issues have to be resolved as well.
0: I see. So I guess the typical factory, and I honestly, I haven't been in one in a little while, um, they Tend to have their own backup power, so they're not really at risk within the factory of losing power right. for any length of time.
1: Right, but the home workers might be, and yeah. how many home workers have uh, have a uh, you know generators or backup? Or that's you know, we just had a windstorm last week in this area and it knocked many people out here for days. And mm-hmm. if they're a critical worker in that infrastructure, then I need to, you know, what am I going to do about that? Am I going to subsidize generators for all my workers? How am I going to think about that?
0: I'm wondering about the smaller steps that maybe companies can take along the way that would provide some immediate value, maybe before they put together the whole vision. I would say it's very similar,
1: analogous to the entire digital transformation process. When you look at Industry 4.0, there's what, a dozen technologies at least, and variations of those that you could bring in, in-house or into your factory to help improve your processes. You don't just drop all those technologies on the floor and say, all right, our industry 4.0 transfer, tra- transformation is complete. You know, everybody's awesome. Mm. It doesn't work that way. It's okay. I need to, I'm, I, I have a scrap problem here. So I'm going to install a quality management system. And I have some machine downtime issues. So I think an IoT system would help there. So your path to industry 4.0 is one step at a time. And that's the same way that's going to happen with this remote worker, virtual reality metaverse sort of thing, right? And we kind of talked about this a little bit already. If I implement 5G at my facility, that's going to go a long way towards helping connect sensors and the physical devices in a digital twin environment. Every time I upgrade a piece of equipment so that it has network connectivity as opposed to some of the World War II era you know, machines I still see at factories, Every time I upgrade a new machine, that gives me another step towards that process. If I implement a cloud-based MES, that's a huge step because I've suddenly given all my workers the ability to work from home. Um, So there are small steps and each one of those is just a, a piece of the puzzle towards the bigger picture.
0: What is Plex specifically doing to make this possible? Do you have this enabling of remote factory work? Is is that part of your software development or even your roadmap for your products? Great question. I would look at it just a little bit differently. I would say as a cloud-based software,
1: enabling remote factory work is inherently part of what we already offer. So the ability to do work remotely is an advantage that Plex customers have had for, for almost 20 or over 20 years, actually. So actually our roadmap focuses more on improving not only improving factory operations, but enabling those automation capabilities, the things that will support remote factory engagement at even higher levels. Uh, One example would be our Demandcaster product that uh, helps forecast inventory levels with accuracy. So in this case, Demandcaster will actually point out when a manufacturer might see an increase or decrease in demand, and that allows them to staff appropriately and respond to those spikes or those decreases. And that automation, and that's all automated so that the decision makers can then make those decisions on where they need those workers on call or not. So we actually build capabilities into the software that enable that automation, which in turn provides a platform for for remote work. I would also add though, and this is kind of intriguing, I think some of that last mile type stuff required to build out a true metaverse is much more hardware and controller and network centric. And that would fall into the wheelhouse of our parent company, Rockwell Automation, that just acquired us. And they are already laying the groundwork for this. They have, I should say we now, because we're part of them, software like Emulate 3D and the Factory Talk Twin Studios products. Those are right in the the wheelhouse of virtual reality and the metaverse. And they're already laying the foundation for that. So when you think of the combination of Rockwell and their hardware-centric capabilities and Plex coming in and filling the niche there with the software side. You basically have a, a kind of a wall to wall solution there that is that is moving very quickly towards a, a virtual a lights out factory, uh, metaverse, whatever you want to call it.
0: You know, as you said, you've, you've been in the cloud for more than 20 years now. The company's been around for 30 years. I'm wondering, have you always had the multi tenant SaaS? Type of cloud, or did it evolve at any point from, let's say, single tenant SaaS or hosted cloud? Some of the other kinds of cloud that are still Mm -hmm. around today that, in my view, aren't really the full purest form of cloud, which is multi tenant SaaS.
1: Right, exactly. So there's a bit of an interesting story there, and the short answer to the question, the short answer to your question is, it was shared multi tenant from the very get go, because back then there was no cloud private hosted or otherwise so things like single versus shared tenant really didn't even exist we built our own private cloud one of the first enterprise systems in the world to do so about 2000 2001 right there along with salesforce i think uh, they did it at the same time although i always say we probably did it a couple months earlier than they did so we were we were very much on the on the leading edge there and the interesting thing there is obviously if the company's been around 30 years we didn't start in the cloud even before we built our own our first system was a Unix system with dumb terminals, right? those dumb green screen terminals. Mm -hmm. And so we were used to this notion of, we would make a change on that central Unix server and all those terminals throughout the plant would automatically reflect that change. Mm -hmm. And then in 95, right when the company started officially, we broke off from a forging company, started our own company, Windows 95 was there, client server was all the rage. So we built a client server system and it was awful because this concept of making a change at a single location was gone. We had to implement, whenever we made a change, it had to be installed in every single PC at every single location in the entire plant. And we were like, this is crazy. This is really hard. So in 2000, when the internet came along or at least the commercial view that we were able to get and we looked at a browser, we realized, oh my gosh, a browser is basically a dumb terminal. All it doing is doing is rendering what you push to it from a central web server. Yeah. And we we're like, oh my gosh, we have our central deployment re- mechanism back. And not yeah. only is it plant-wide, it's worldwide. So even though it didn't spawn from a single tenant, it spawned from this notion of this central piece of control that allowed us to make change at all of the, the entry points around the, around the plant. And so we sat down in 99, 2000 to build this. And we we, not knowing how forward thinking we were at the time, because we didn't know, we didn't know, we built a shared multi-tenant system. And the core of that architecture is still in use today because it was so powerful and so advanced for, for its time.
0: I think an analyst or two that I've read in recent years have, have noted the irony of this kind of cloud. It's like a throwback. Yeah. In <laughs> fact, I've got a slide
1: when I give presentations. If you think about every 20 years, 20 or 30 years, back in the, was it 60s, you had these timeshare computers, right? You had these centralized servers and the, the VAX and all that stuff. And then we moved to client server. And then 20, 30 years later, we've moved to cloud. And now where are we moving kind of back to the edge, right? We're talking about edge computing and edge AI. And and so right. there's always this there's this 20 to 30-year cycle of centralized at the edge, centralized at the edge. It's just kind of interesting.
0: Regarding multi-tenant SaaS, especially for manufacturers, I've been really given the impression by some of your competitors who I it's fair to say, have struggled to get their manufacturing customers to move to multi-tenant SaaS. So I'm thinking of SAP primarily, and there's a few others. They held back by their customers' need to continue running the factory systems, including the MESs, the manufacturing execution systems, and probably the ERP itself on-premises, because those systems need to be a, highly customized, and that maybe it's easier to integrate them with the factory automation systems and, and the other machines. How does Plex view that issue since your products do run on multi-tenant SaaS for right. the few cool. years? It's
1: a great question. So I'm going to split that into, into two parts, if that's okay. The, the mm-hmm. first part is this need to be highly customized, right? So remember, you've got decades of ISVs making a living with customizations, and then make a killing helping you through the patches and upgrading. So of course, there's gonna be very strong pushback in the SAP ecosystem against a platform that sort of cuts out that business model, right? Plex doesn't have that baggage. Being cloud-based, we're versionless. Every single customer we have is on the very latest version of the software at all times. Mm -hmm. So they're always up to date and don't have to worry about patching and upgrading. But the truth is there are sometimes customizations needed and we handle that three ways. We have a standardized REST-based API that uh, our customers can access. We have our own internal extensibility option where customers can build their own applications and write their own SQL to support it. And then the customer can petition us to add those customizations into the product, which we at times do judiciously, right? Being highly customized, I think, is a throwback to different models. And we've addressed that through our extensibility because it, does, it is required. I just want to touch briefly on the integration with older systems. It is a valid point, but I would say, you know, we have a full set of APIs They're integrating with factory automation systems, like the older systems. Mm-hmm. And like I said, we have a full set of APIs for those situations, whether you want to go in the direction of say an older corporate ERP or maybe down in the direction of the shop floor with those older systems. But what our customers do, and it's really no different than the SAP world, is if, if that older system can't communicate with our APIs, they would simply write a piece of middleware and orchestration solution there, where that solution actually integrates however that older equipment needs to be on one side and connects to our standard APIs on the other. So we can communicate that way with the older equipment on the shop floor.
0: The other day, SAP at TechEd announced uh, a low-code, no-code tool, which is something that a number of ERP vendors have introduced. Do you have one? Are you thinking of introducing one? We've
1: had one since uh, about 2007. And it was actually the second solution that I mentioned in, in the previous question about how we address those customizations. It's called VisionPlex. Mm-hmm. It allows our customers to build their own screens completely mm-hmm. native in the application without having any coding capability, uh, requirements to that. Uh, and they can use standardized data sources that we've built to um, populate and run those screens. Or if they want, they can go a little bit step further and they can write some basic um SQL to access the data in a way that they want and need to support that screen as well. So so we do have that capability.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and I guess it's great that you've had that experience because I have to say when I when I hear these announcements from the other ERP vendors. My journalistic skepticism hat comes on, and I think really non-technical users are going to do that. Really, this is going to make them do that, and it's going to open up the development world. It sounds too good to be true, and I'll admit I haven't tried to use any of these tools yet, but it sounds like a variation on things that I've heard off and on over the years, like uh, business process management, workflow tools, the diagramming and all that.
1: Yeah. So there's, there's always a gap between the promise and the realization or the claims and the realization. So I, I don't know what they're offering. I know our low code tool is pretty powerful because we've been using, doing it for a long time, but there's always a little bit of technical, you know, skill required in understanding how to build the screen and how to move the widgets around and how to connect them to a data source. So there's some, there's some capabilities there that, that you need. So, but, you know, like I said, we've been doing it for a while and hopefully have ironed out a lot of those
0: bugs. So who are the types of users that are doing it? So they're not the business-only person, who which is what it sounds like for some of these tools. Are they like a, not a programmer, but they have some pretty good computer chops? They're yeah. not afraid of computers. Yeah. Is that the kind of person who does it? Yeah,
1: it is. It's, it's business analysts. It's people in the accounting department who want a uh, tweak to an existing report and add a couple of fields that they don't have. Sometimes some of the some customers do have an, an IT Group and and they want to see reports or screens in their own way in their own format and so it's a it's across
0: the board yeah well Jerry this has been an interesting conversation and I, I thank you for your time for joining Jerry us today David yeah Jerry David thank you.